I'd like to begin this morning by asking you to think about your life and think about the last time you were really bothered by something. When was the last time you were outraged? I was really bothered by the lack of service at a restaurant I received the other day. It just bugged me. I thought, this is wrong. I'm supposed to give a tip? It really bugged me, bothered me. I was outraged. I gave a tip anyway. I don't know what my problem is, but... What kind of stuff bothers you, really grates on you, causes you to be outraged, where you think, this is wrong, where you think, that's bad, where you think, I hate that, something needs to be done, how dare they? What a positive way to start a sermon, right? (laughs) When was the last time you thought that about someone who is a professing Christian teacher? When was the last time you were outraged by something someone said or did in the name of Jesus? When was the last time a false teacher really upset you and made you mad and you thought something needs to be done to silence that man or that woman? If you're like me, not so many times. And I probably, because of what I do, am outraged more often than you are because I need fuel for the fire, right? But the New Testament book of Jude assumes that there would be that kind of outrage in us. At least enough to say, as Christian men and women and boys and girls, when something is said in the name of Jesus that isn't true... Enough to make us say, that's wrong. That bothers me. That's bad. Something should be done. Now, this is another sermon for another time, but hopefully what happens as we do focus on what Christ has done and we do things in remembrance of Him and we see the depth and the breadth and the significance and the glory of the gospel of Christ, Hopefully that's a built-in positive way to cause us to be upset with things that are not right done in His name. And that's what we typically try to do. I hope I'm helping you to be outraged week in and week out by helping you to see the glory of Christ. But we do need to, to become outraged enough so that we will do what the Bible calls us to do in Jude. And if you want to go ahead and look with me in Jude verse 3, you'll see important words to us as Christians where it says, Beloved... Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, common fare, that's what we would typically do, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, urging you to contend, to fight, to be outraged so that you will, so to speak, for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. At least for these folks, and sometimes probably for us, no doubt, there's that time when you have to say, I want to talk about the positive, but because you're not seeing the negative as negative, and you're not outraged, and so you're not contending, I've got to draw it to your attention. I've got to put a sharper point on it. 
to say, if Jesus Christ really has been raised from the dead, if He really is the final word from God, if He really is the one to be rested in solely, entirely, and, and you would agree with me on that because you're my brothers and sisters in Christ, I've got to sometimes push pause on that and say, well, then do something about these liars. Then get upset. Then be outraged. It would only be consistent. It would only be logical. You should care. And so that's what Judah's doing, is, is, is pushing that button for us. Pushing the button indeed. So this morning what we'll do is focus on verses 3 and 4, really verse 4, but we're looking at the rationale for this. What's, the, what's, the, what's Jude thinking? Why is this happening? Why contend for the faith? And we looked at four of six points of rationale. Okay, the argument, a six-fold argument. We looked at the first four of six last week. I'll just quickly review, and then we'll focus on the last two, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. So the first reality that would cause us to contend would be the reality of the faith. And again, we see in verse 3, it's to contend for the faith. That would be the Christian faith. That would be the truths about what Christ did and what they mean, the interpretation of them, because we have that in the Bible also. We have the historic events, part of the faith, and we have the meaning of those historical events. Uh, events. It's the faith. So since we have that, it can be contended for and should be. Let's move on. Second reality that gives us a rationale for contending for the faith is the reality of the faith being conclusive or complete. We see it, verse 3 at the end, it was once for all delivered to the saints. So it's conclusive, it's done, it's complete, it's sufficient. Number three, third reality that gives us a rationale for contending for the faith, the reality of responsibility. And verse three, Jude uses that word delivered. The faith that was once and for all delivered. It could be translated, as we saw last time, handed down, entrusted. You've got this sacred trust, the faith that Christians have. And because we have it, we we need to protect it so that we can pass it on to other generations. That should motivate us. We've got to keep it sure, secure, preserved. The faith. Our watch, so to speak, as we talked about last time. That should motivate us. Fourth reality that gives us a rationale for contending for the faith is that it belongs to the saints. It belongs to the saints. Notice it says, delivered to the saints at the end of verse 3. So this isn't just Pastor Pat's responsibility or another one of our pastor's responsibilities or some special Bible teacher that you like or a good Christian author that you like and think, you know what, I'm going to let them contend. They do need to contend. Titus says it's one of the qualifications for a pastor that they would not only teach what is healthy, but they would also um, silence those who don't. So it's true, pastors should do that. But Jude is written to people like us, Christians. The faith has been given to us. So in your spiritual bank account, so to speak, you've got the faith. Well, you want it to be safe and secure. Preserved. Maybe bank account isn't a good illustration. It's safe. As far as you're concerned, it's one of your spiritual disciplines maybe, so to speak. And in your sphere of influence, where you are, starting with your own life, 
friends, family, others, church, go broader and broader. I've got to be a contender. It's the faith. You can't just slough it off to somebody else. Oh, that they'll do that. I've got to do that. And this sounds like a big to-do list, I know. And there's a command in Jude. But it doesn't need to be burdensome, really. I mean, if you stop and think about it again, if Jesus, because of what he has done, has guaranteed and given you not just a clean slate before God, but he sees you as if you're perfect, doing all the right things, What a gift. Cleansed from all unrighteousness, all law-breaking, all violations, the, the, the bad thoughts, the bad actions, you name it, clean, pure. That's a good gift. It's a great gift. Sometimes I think I'm sure glad that we can't read each other's minds. Ugh. Right? We would just hate each other. It'd be terrible. Cleansed. Pure. So good. It's awesome. Reconciled to God. Hope not in hope, like I hope so. Hope as in, I'm sure this is true because Jesus has been raised from the dead. What I'm trying to do is just kind of prime your gospel pump a little bit. Or the gospel pump, so to speak. Just to say, you know what? When you see it as that valuable and that good and that important, I'll fight over that. I'll stand up. I'll take the risk. It's that important. It's that good. Now, new territory. We're on five? Okay. The fifth reality that gives us a rationale for contending for the faith is the reality of anti-gospel, bear with me on this, anti-gospel creeper perverts. Okay? I just need to live up to your expectations of me. Um, (laughs) Because of the reality of anti-gospel anti-the-faith, so to speak, creeper, they're creeps, creeper, perverts. Probably not a word we should use lightly because it's kind of a nasty, ugly, gross word. But since he uses the word perversion in our text, I'm going to use it. Anti-gospel, creeper, perverts trying to paint the picture as a bad picture because Jude does and because I want you to see people who dress nice, they talk nice, they are nice as anti-gospel creeper perverts actually if they don't teach the faith, the truth about Christ, right? And Jude, I think, is doing that. I know Jude is doing that. These people aren't that much different from us. 
they're, they're being persuaded to one degree or another. Maybe they're not actually following them, but they're accepting them. They're, they're tolerating them. And so Jude pulls out the pervert kind of words, the big, ugly, nasty kind of words, hopefully to get the Christian congregation there, like I would try to do here at Omaha Bible Church, to say, they're not nice, really. They're not good, really. They really, therefore, shouldn't be welcomed. Because they're not holding fast to the truth about Christ. The faith. We don't have much of a stomach for this. Maybe they didn't have much of a stomach for it either. Remember, 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 we're not the first culture that was pluralistic. Not at all. Got to be accepting. I mean, even in ancient culture, a lot of times when someone would, would conquer another territory, oftentimes what would happen, I'm not saying always and never, um, you, would, you would actually mandate that the people have other gods. And maybe they would share gods with the other cultures that are under the same domination so that they would be more tolerant and more accepting of one another and more accepting of the ruler and the king. So we're not the first ones. And by the way, when I'm talking about fighting, I keep qualifying this. I don't mean physical fighting. There's no sense of that in Jude. Um, this is not a call for crusade. Um, but it's a call for a spiritual battle, a real battle, a more important battle even. If they're at odds with the faith, they might look good, they might sound good, but they're not good. Isn't it interesting, we'll, we'll move on in just a second, isn't it interesting that Jude is assuming that the believers here know the faith well enough so that they could have this kind of discernment? I think sometimes we don't know the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints well enough to spot bad guys and bad gals when we see them or when we hear them. Then it makes it more complicated because you try to help your friends along in understanding who the enemy actually is, even though they look like they're not an enemy. And then you're totally the bad guy or the bad gal because you dare to criticize anybody. It's hard. This is a hard thing. Verse 4 again says, if we could look a little closer, for certain people, as I've said before, not just ideas, it's okay to be against ideas, but it's certainly unacceptable to be against people. For certain people, it's personal, have crept in unnoticed. The assumption there is that they're not welcome. They've crept in, so they have the disguise of, I'm a Christian and I belong to this group. But they've crept in and they're unnoticed. They don't belong. They're actually not welcome. Hmm. Imagine today saying some people are not welcome in our church. Wow. I would say just about anybody's welcome in Omaha Bible Church. People who aren't welcome are false teachers. I suppose we could elaborate more and unpack that, but 
Really? Oh, my. You're so exclusive. So close-minded. No, but there is such a thing as the faith that has been once and for all delivered to the saints, and it is our sacred trust to protect that from anti-gospel creeper perverts. Hmm. Now, I wouldn't say that in any context. (laughs) But in the context of Jude, I, I would say it, and you go, wow, that's right. But see, if there is no the faith, then what I'm saying is just like hate speech. But if there is the faith with the Savior, who is the mediator, this is just reasonable. Now, Jude, I think here, is going to go out of his way to make sure that it doesn't matter if they're well-mannered, well-dressed, well-spoken, likable, or whatever, because we tend to accept people who are like that. Verse 4 then says, Who long ago, just so we're clear, these people we're talking about, long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. That really carries a, carry, carries a good punch. People we're talking about might look like us. They might even sometimes talk like us. They're long ago designated for this condemnation, not just any condemnation. And the Bible would help us to see that false teachers have it worse for a certain condemnation. So it's it's an extraordinary kind of condemnation. It's this kind of condemnation. And just to be blunt, they're ungodly. Doesn't sound very blunt. I mean, I can think of worse things. That's why I call them anti-gospel creeper perverts. You know, but, but think about it. They say at the, the very essence of their being, they're godly. I know God, right? And Jude just puts a fine point on it and says they're ungodly. In a sense, like ultimate insult. Blunt, to the point, gloves off. Please remember that Jude is not addressing the culture at large. Please read your New Testaments with a fine-tooth comb looking for that. Don't take my word for it. But he's not calling us to be anti-culture at large. He's not calling us to just go do war with all sinners out there. As much as we might want to sometimes. Unbelievers act like unbelievers. Sometimes it's worse than other times. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for doing something about that, but that's not what Jude is talking about. That's not the pulse of the New Testament. What's outrageous here in Jude is not unbelievers acting like unbelievers. What's outrageous are professing believers denying, we'll talk about this in a second, either in what they teach or in how they live, the faith. Sometimes we get all riled up and want to go fight, but we actually want to go fight the wrong battle. Amen.
here it's these sneaker guys and gals. The worst kind. Now, just knowing how we are and thinking, man, this is negative and he said pervert, creep. I think Charles Haddon Spurgeon was the one that said, you should think, if you only knew the things I don't say. Um, (laughs) Because people criticized him for what he did say. (laughs) Think about how admirable this actually really is. So if you take small children, they don't have to be yours, they can be someone else's, maybe maybe the illustration's better that way, somebody you're responsible for. And you take them to the park. Are you going to watch out for the kids or not? I hope so. To the point where you might say, we need to be careful at the park, let's have fun at the park, but we need to be careful and we don't talk to strangers. They might seem like they're nice. They might really be nice, but they may not be nice. So we need to be careful when we're at the park. I've told my kids before that parks are great, but you do have to be careful because if you were a bad person who wanted to hurt little kids like you, you'd probably go to a nice place where little boys and girls like to go. You'd go to a park. And so it doesn't mean we can't go. It doesn't mean we have to live in total you know, bondage. But let's be careful. Here are some safety ideas. I don't know how many times I've had that conversation with different kids, not just my kids. And are you sitting there thinking right now, as I told you the story, he is a seriously bad parent. He is so mean. How dare he do that? You're not thinking that. Now, maybe you would take a little bit different approach than I would, maybe a bit bit of a different tact. But the bottom line is where you're going to be in a potentially dangerous situation, especially where it doesn't look dangerous, it actually looks welcoming and inviting, you want to make sure you have at least some of your guard up. Well, think about it. Christian context, welcome, inviting, whether it's church or some other kind of Christian context. You'd think it'd be a place where you could put your guard down, and to a degree, I hope you can, but at the same time, you've got to know there are gospel creeps, because they're anti-gospel people, posing as gospel people. And so it's not unloving, it's not like, oh, Jude, he's the grumpy brother of Jesus, No. Out of love and care and concern, hopefully out of love for God first, because He gave us the faith, and then out of love for neighbor, you've got to make sure you're aware and others are aware there are such a thing as posers, spiritual posers. And we've got to be against them. And they're a problem. It's reasonable, it's rational, it's logical, it's loving, it's kind, it's gracious. Now look at verse 4 there toward the end where it says who pervert or twist 
who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We'll pay closer attention in just a second. The tone, the sense, the flow of the passage... I think what's happening here, when you just keep reading it over and over again, see where Jude is going, I think what he's doing is, again, answering somewhat of an objection. Yeah, but they're not that bad. All they did was, was give us some, something new that wasn't part of the faith. They just claimed new revelation and put a new spin on things. And so we've, they've got, we've got some extra writings. And, and maybe just, you know, they just added a little. It's not really a problem. They're not so bad. Surely you don't need to be so uptight about this. Come on, really lighten up, calm down, take a chill pill. I mean, just something. Are you really that uptight? I think, I think Jude says what he says to make sure that we understand just how bad the problem is. Just what a big deal it is to say, I've got something secret and more extra. When he says, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny, by doing what they're doing, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They're terrible. That's why we get worked up. That's why we contend. It is that bad. It's awful. What he's saying at the end of verse 4, if you want to encapsulate, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying they do whatever they want to do. And if it helps you to see it that way, I, I guess I actually want you to see it that way. If it helps you, I want to look again. What is he really saying? the grace of God. Okay, sensuality. They do whatever they feel like doing, whatever they want to do. And by doing so, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They're free spirits. But by being free spirits and saying, I've got something. I've got something extra. I know it's once and for all delivered to the saints' faith. Actually, they don't know that. Work of Christ is done. But I, but I, but I, it's sensuality. They do whatever they want to do. But I... And notice he uses the, the big, awesome, uh, sovereignty words describing Jesus. By doing all this extra but I stuff, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Master, right? Uh, king, sovereign, the one who's totally in charge, and you don't say, but I too... Lord, same kind of idea. He's, he's using very similar words to, to pile on, so to speak. Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. So as soon as they're, a, I've got this and I've got that, it's a practical, functional denial of the sovereignty, kingship, lordship, bossship, if that helps you, of Jesus Christ, the one and only sovereign. And, and I, I really, really want us to get that. I know Jude wanted his original hearers to get that. I want you to get that. I want to get that. It's not innocent. It's a practical dethroning of Jesus. And that should outrage us because as Jude made it clear, only master. You don't have the right. You're, you, you're not the, 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 you know, the, 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 the backup master. There's only one. But when we're 
giving more than the faith, denying things that are part of the faith, contrary to the faith, might come from nice-looking, nice-talking people, and they might say they're Christians, but they're denying the one Master, Lord Jesus Christ. And anybody and everybody and all of us should understand that that's a bad idea. Right? If I stood up here, and I don't want to do it even pretend, but if I stood up here and said, I deny Jesus Christ, His Lordship, His sovereignty, His mastery over my life. It'd be easy to spot me, right? You go, that guy's a false teacher. He's telling lies. These guys aren't doing that. They're actually saying, I affirm. Because that's what false teachers would do. But by their sensuality, by their freedom, they deny Him. It's very judgmental, by the way. And we all know that America's favorite Bible verse is, Judge not, lest you be judged, right? So discount everything I've said. Well, that's in the Sermon on the Mount context, Matthew 7, off the top of my head. There's a context there. Same context that says, don't throw your pearls before swine. And as D.A. Carson says, somebody has to figure out who the pigs are. Um, it's going to take a while for that to settle in some of your minds. It's in a context of judging. We certainly need to judge between right and wrong, true and false. We're not to be judgmental as in I'm better than others, self-righteous. But we're called to be discerning. Where were we? Oh, interestingly enough, if you want to look at the details a little bit in verse 4, um, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. The sensuality idea, um, as you may have picked up on, it sounds sexual. And it's used that way sometimes. But it's not always used that way. It's used for just following what you think is right or feel is right or whatever you want to do. That's why I've been saying what I've been saying the way I've been saying it. So I'm not going to make a decision which one is he talking about. I'm not sure. And great Bible scholars who've given their life to studying Jude aren't sure either. Let's just leave it broad. They take their own desires, whether it's in saying what they want to say about God or in acting how they want to act before the face of God. That's the problem. Their freedom to pretend like they're in charge when Jesus is in charge is the problem. Why is it that a number one New York Times best-selling author, world-renowned Bible teacher, tells us that when Jesus went to the cross, he ceased to be the Son of God? Because she is a spiritual pervert, is what she is. And she says things and teaches things and people buy up her books that deny the once and for all delivered to the saints faith.
because if Jesus ceased to be the Son of God, then He is not the eternal God. And Christians have known this since there's been Christianity. Super harsh of me to say that. I think I'd be a bad pastor if I didn't say things like that. If you say things that are contrary to the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith, you're denying the sovereignty, mastership, lordship of Christ, even if you say you're a Christian. That's the teaching side of it. And we can talk about other people. You're saying, who are you talking about? It doesn't matter. We can go down the lifestyle side of things. How about people who say they're Christians and they say that other Christians, professing Christians, can live however they want. What we should be saying is, who are you to say that? Because they're revealing they have a Messiah complex. And they're denying the one and only Messiah by saying that. Again, don't misunderstand, I'm not going after sinners acting like sinners. Or in other words, unbelievers acting like unbelievers. But when professing Christians say that people can live however they want to live and it's not sin, and professing Christians can live however they want to live and God is good with that, that's following sensuality and that is pretending to be God because Jesus didn't say we could live however we wanted to live. And yet whole denominations will say you can live however you want to live. And you can live whether you're a heterosexual or a homosexual and live out your desires and God is pleased with that. Well, that's a problem because Jesus talked about these things. And we're Christians, so we follow what Jesus says. So our big beef should be with professing Christians who say, it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter what you do. Oh, actually it does. You see the the importance and significance? The examples could go on. Um, But this... This is a major problem all around us. And it's not going to end. So we're called to contend. Let's move on. Somebody told me this morning kindly that they appreciated the fact that my sermons are positive. And uh, I said, I'm thankful for that, but in Jude, they can't really be positive. (laughs) Please remember that the temptation to not be courageous and not be clear and not be committed to the faith has always been ever since there's been a faith. We can take some courage from that and, and some inspiration from that. Doesn't mean it's fun. Doesn't mean it's not difficult. But Okay, let's move on. Finally, in this one, we'll be uh, quick and easy to do. Sixth reality that gives us rationale for contending for the faith, the reality of condemnation without the gospel. The reality of condemnation without the gospel. He did say in verse 4, 
designated for this condemnation. I at least wanted you to give a little bit of pause for that. The people we're talking about are people who are facing condemnation. And if they tell enough lies, significant enough lies, the people that follow them are going to face condemnation too. He doesn't unpack that. But I, I at least wanted you to think about the fact that Jude calls for contending in part because there's such a thing as condemnation. And we oftentimes don't think there's such a thing as condemnation. We think the one and only prerequisite for heaven is death. By the way, it is a prerequisite. (laughs) But when you die, you don't go to heaven. Apart from faith in Christ. Condemnation is real. Heaven is real. And hell is real. By the way, I won't tell you that because I've been there and now I'm going to write a book to make a bunch of money on it. Where I will say things contrary to the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith. Which would cause you to conclude, because you're faithful Christians, that I'm denying the sovereignty of Jesus. Hell is for real. Condemnation is for real. And so you whether you're very young all the way up to great-grandma, great-grandpa, everybody in between, because condemnation is for real, you should care about contending for the faith because people you know and care about need the faith, the truth about Jesus Christ to escape condemnation. Again, it comes back to this is not unloving or unkind. It's just getting in touch with what's true and what's right. Condemnation, what a terrible reality. By the way, did you know that the the statement, the phrase, um, passed away? doesn't have a Christian history. It has a Christian science history. Christian science? Mary Baker, Patterson Glover, Eddie Patterson Glover Fry, depending on the husband. Um, Mary Baker Eddie, founder of Christian science. It's like grape nuts, you know? Neither grapes nor nuts, uh, as John MacArthur says. Christian science, neither Christian nor science. Oh, they passed away. Yeah, because Mary Baker Eddy denied the reality of death. Death is very real. It's very real. Jesus died. And Jesus rose again from the dead. And if you trust in him, you'll be raised from the dead also. Condemnation is where you don't trust in Christ. But you don't just pass away. Now, I'm not going to scold anybody in this room or elsewhere for saying so-and-so passed away. I'm just 
using it as a point of reference to highlight the point that as Christians at least, let's be thinking in clear terms so we can kindly, graciously communicate the truth regarding the significance of escaping condemnation by resting in the perfect work of Jesus. Contending isn't easy. Contending isn't nice. Contending is messy. Contending involves understanding and knowing, passion, conviction. But it's super important, meant to be done out of love for other people and out of love for God. Because there is such a thing as the faith. Let's be done for this morning. Father, thank you for today. And thank you for the fact that while there has been false teaching since the beginning of time, really, since the fall, before the fall, thinking about Satan, we're thankful that you speak truthfully, you speak so we can understand that you've come into this world by sending your son Jesus so that we can know. We're thankful that he's the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. We're thankful that while there's so much we can't understand, that Jesus came here and he came here speaking and he came here explaining explaining you, explaining humanity, explaining our problem, explaining his perfect work. And while there are things about him we don't understand, he certainly did and said enough so that we can understand. So we're grateful. My prayer this morning for the men and women and boys and girls at Omaha Bible Church would be that we would see Jesus for who he is, that we would experience his great love, that we would respond out of gratitude by loving him and loving other people, and that then, with a disposition of humility, not arrogance or judgmentalism, that we would be good missionaries and that we would be good contenders as you've entrusted us with this significant and important uh, calling and duty. And now as we turn to remembering that it's not about us, that it's about Jesus, and as we eat and as we drink, may we find ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit resting in Christ so that we would find ourselves leaving here having been reminded that our rest is in Christ, then motivated to love you and to love our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen.